Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway List podcast, the best podcast ever. Talking about chapter 41 of Human Bondage, Art Student Eye Roll. Um, <laughs> what, I mean, what even happened in that chapter? It was just art students moaning about art, just being art students. It was kind of fun, though. Swim said the mum and fishy said, A recap from Novel Guide. Philip runs into Fanny Price at the gardens of Luxembourg. Though she is rough and unpleasant, she tells him she will do anything to help him. Note, he also finds her unattractive. I see a pattern here. Yeah, that was really weird, wasn't it? Why does he keep finding everyone unattractive? Um, she tells him about the advanced sketching session in the evening. and He goes, though he is not good enough. He does a poor job and realizes he is not as good as he thought he was. At supper, Philip hears Flanagan and Lawson discussing art and finds out the latest ideas of on art in Paris, including a description of the Olympia by Manet, currently the sensation. The art students argue about whether art should be moral. The art critic Ruskin, whom Haywood taught Philip to adore, is old-fashioned to these students, who damn all the Victorians. Apparently, Olympia was quite controversial, what shocked contemporary audience was that Olympia's nudity, sorry, it was not Olympia's nudity, nor the presence of her fully clothed maid, but her confrontational gaze and a number of details identifying her as a demi-mondaine or a prostitute. These include the orchid in her hair, her bracelet, pearl earrings, and the oriental shawl on which she lies, symbols of wealth and sensuality. The black ribbon around her neck, in stark contrast with her pale flesh and her off, her cast-off slipper underlined the voluptuous atmosphere. Olympia was named was a name associated with prostitutes in 1860s Paris. And there's even a link to the Wikipedia. Um, oh, that's a bad painting. <laughs> that's straight up like... There's something off about the um, depth, kind of like the depth perception is turned off on that. Yeah, that's crap. <laughs> Here I am, an art critic myself. Um, all right. Thanks for the recap. Swims to the Moa Fishy via Novel Guide. Jan Brunt said, I would probably hate trying to have a pleasant drink at a table next to these pretentious art students, but they are a breath of fresh air compared to Philip's last batch of colleagues. In London he was lonely. Now he can't go for a walk without running into someone he knows. I think he'll really enjoy his new life. I also expect he'll mix with foreigners and learn how to get ginny. Does get ginny mean get drunk? Uh, I think this is the happiest we've seen Philip yet, and he's only been in a far... Paris for a few days. Last October I walked the exact route Philip took from Montparnasse to Luxembourg Gardens. What a difference a year makes. Different, Definitely bittersweet for me. Oh wow, that's kind of cool, Jan Brunt, that you were there a year ago. Laura Weistich said the descriptions of the Americans are particularly hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> some things never change, eh? I'm Norwegian said they can be an obnoxious bunch, art students that is, the worst is watching student films or performance art. <clears throat> hey, let them be. Let them be obnoxious students, you know. You only get to be a young person once. So you might as well be obnoxious about it. 
Alright, that's the conversation done. Going a little bit quick tonight because I'm a bit tired. So let's dive into the next chapter, shall we? Chapter 42. Goes like this. There was a general disturbance, Flanagan, and two or three more went on to the music hall while Philip walked slowly with Clutton and Lawson to the Closerie de Lilis. You must go to the gate Montparnasse, said Lawson to him. It's one of the loveliest things in Paris. I'm going to paint it one of these days. Philip, influenced by Hayward, looked upon music halls with scornful eyes, but he had reached Paris at a time when their artistic possibilities were just discovered. The pure the peculiarities of lighting, the masses of dingy red and tarnished gold, the heaviness of the shadows and the decorative lines offered a new theme, and half the studios in the quarter contained sketches made in one or other of the local theatres. Jeez, I can't read tonight. <clears throat> Men of letters following in the painter's wake conspired suddenly to find artistic value in the turns, and red-nosed comedians were lauded to the skies of their sense of character, fat female singers who had bawled obscurely for twenty years were discovered to possess inimitable drollery. There were those who found an aesthetic delight in performing dogs, while others exhausted their vocabulary to extol the distinction of con conjurers and trick cyclists. The crowd, too, under another influence, was become an object of sympathetic interest. With Hayward, Philip had disdained humanity in the mass. He adopted the attitude of one who wraps himself in solitariness and watches with disgust the antics of the vulgar. But Clutton and Lawson talked of the multitude with enthusiasm. They described the seething throng that filled the various fairs of Paris, the sea of faces, half seen in the glare of acetylene, half hidden in the darkness, and the blare of trumpets, the hooting of whistles, the hum of voices, what they said was new and strange to Philip. They told him about Cronshaw. Have you ever read any of his work? No, said Philip. It came out in the yellow book. They looked upon him as painters often do, writers, with contempt because he was a layman, with tolerance because he practised an art, and with awe because he used a medium in which themselves felt ill at ease. He's an extraordinary fellow. You'll find him a bit disappointing at first. He only comes out at his best when he's drunk. And the nuisance is, added Clutton, that it takes him a devil of a time to get drunk. When they arrived at the cafe, Lawson told Philip that they would have to go in. There was hardly a bite in the autumn air, but Cronshaw had a morbid fear of draughts, and even in the warmest weather sat inside. He knows everyone worth knowing, Lawson explained. He knew Pater and Oscar Wilde, and he knows Malam and all those fellows. The object of their search sat in the most sheltered corner of the cafe, with his coat on and the collar turned up. He wore his hat pressed down on his forehead so that he should avoid cold air. He was a big man, stout but not obese, with a round face, a small moustache and little rather stupid eyes. His head did not seem quite big enough for his body, he looked like a pea uneasily poised on an egg. He was playing dominoes with a Frenchman and greeted the newcomers with a quiet smile. He did not speak, but as if to make room for them, pushed away the little pile of sauces on the table, which indicated the number of drinks he had already consumed. He nodded to Philip when he was introduced to him and went on with the game. 
Philip's knowledge of the language was small, but he knew enough to tell that Cronshaw, although he had lived in Paris for several years, spoke French execrably. At last he leaned back with a smile of triumph. J'ai vu et battu, he said with an abominable accent. Garçon. He called the waiter and... Oh, garçon? Called the waiter and turned to Philip. Just out from England, see any cricket? Philip was a little confused at the unexpected question. Cronshaw knows the averages of every first-class cricketer for the last twenty years, said Lawson, smiling. The Frenchman left them for friends at another table, and Cronshaw, with the lazy enunciation which was one of his peculiarities, began to discourse on the relative merits of Kent and Lancashire. He told them of the last test match he had seen, and described the course of the game wicket by wicket. That's the only thing I miss in Paris, he said, as he finished the bock which the waiter had brought. You don't get any cricket. Philip was disappointed, and Lawson, pardonably anxious to show off one of the celebrities of the quarter, grew impatient. Cronshaw was taking his time to wake up that evening, though the sources at his side indicated that he had at, la- at least made an honest attempt to get drunk. Clutton watched the scene with amusement. He fancied there was something of affectation in Cronshaw's minute knowledge of cricket. He liked to tantalise people by talking to them of things that obviously bored them. Clutton threw in a question. Have you seen Malam lately? Cronshaw looked at him slowly as if he were turning the inquiry over in his mind. Before he answered, he rapped on the table, the marble table with one of the saucers. Bring my bottle of whiskey, he called out. He again turned to Philip. I keep my own bottle of whiskey. I can't afford to pay fifty centimes for every thimbleful. The waiter brought the bottle, and Cronshaw held it up to the light. They've been drinking it. Waiter, who's been helping himself to my whisky? Mais personne, Monsieur Cronshaw. I made a mark on it last night, and look at it. Monsieur made a mark, but he kept on drinking after that. At that rate, Monsieur wastes his time in making marks. The waiter was a jovial fellow, and he knew Cronshaw intimately. Cronshaw gazed at him. If you give me your word of honour as a nobleman and a gentleman that nobody but I has been drinking my whisky, I'll accept your statement. This remark, translated literally into the crudest French, sounded very funny, and the lady at the comptoir could not help laughing. Il est impayable, she murmured. Cronshaw, hearing her, turned a sheepish eye upon her. She was stout, matronly, and middle-aged, and solemnly kissed his hand to her. She shrugged her shoulders. Fear not, madam, he said heavily. I have passed the age when I am tempted by forty-five and gratitude. He poured himself out some whiskey and water and slowly drank it. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. He talked very well. Lawson and Clutton knew that Cronshaw's remark was an answer to the question about Malam. Cronshaw often went to the gatherings on Tuesday evenings when the poet received men of letters and painters and discoursed with subtle oratory on any subject that was suggested to him. Cronshaw had evidently been there lately. He talked very well, but he talked nonsense. He talked about art as though it were the most important thing in the world. If it isn't, then what are we here for? asked Philip. What you're here for, I don't know. It is no business of mine, but art is a luxury. Men attach importance only to self-preservation and to the propagation of their species. It is only when these instincts are satisfied that they consent to occupy themselves with entertainment which is provided for them by writers, painters and poets. Cronshaw stopped for a moment to to drink. 
He had pondered for 20 years the problem whether he loved liquor because it made him talk or whether he loved conversation because it made him thirsty. Then he said, I wrote a poem yesterday. Without being asked, he began to recite it very slowly, marking the rhythm with an extended forefinger. It was possibly a very fine poem, but at that moment a young woman came in. She had scarlet lips, and it was plain that the vivid colour of her cheeks was not due to the vulgarity of nature. She had blackened her eyelashes and eyebrows, and painted both eyelids with bold blue, which was continued to a triangle at the corner of the eyes. It was fantastic and amusing. Her dark hair was done over her ears in the fashion made popular by Mademoiselle Chloe de Merode. Philip's eyes wandered to her, and Cronshaw, having finished the recitation of his verses, smiled upon him indulgently. "'You were not listening,' he said. "'Oh, yes, I was.' "'I do not blame you, for you have given an apt illustration of the statement I have just made. "'What is art besides love? "'I respect and applaud your indifference to fine poetry "'when you can contemplate the meretricious, meretricious charms of this young person.' She passed by the table at which they were sitting, and he took her arm. Come and sit by my side, dear child, and let us play the divine comedy of love. Fiches moi le pay, she said, and pushing him on one side, continued her perambulation. Art, he continued with a wave of her hand, is merely the refuge which the ingenious have invented when they were supplied with food and women to escape the tediousness of life. Cronshaw filled his glass again and began to talk at length, he spoke with rotund delivery. He chose his words carefully. He mingled wisdom and nonsense in the most astounding manner, gravely making fun of his hearers at one moment, and at the next, playfully giving them some sound advice. He talked of art and literature and life. He was, by turns, devout and obscene, merry and lachrymose. He grew remarkably drunk, and then he began to recite poetry, his own and Milton's, his own and Shelley's, his own, and Kit Marlowe's. At last Lawson, exhausted, got up to go home. I shall go too, said Philip. Clutton, the most silent of them all, remained behind, listening, with a sardonic smile on his lips. To Cronshaw's maunderings, Lawson accompanied Philip to his hotel, and then bade him good night, but when Philip got to bed he could not sleep. All these new ideas that had been flung before him carelessly seethed in his brain. He was tremendously excited. He felt in himself great powers. He had never before been so self-confident. I know I shall be a great artist, he said to himself. I feel it in me. A thrill passed through him as another thought came, but even to himself he would not put it into words. By George, I believe I've got genius. He was in fact very drunk, but as he had not taken more than one glass of beer... It could have been due only to a more dangerous intoxicant than alcohol. All right, there we go. That's that chapter down. Uh, have your say on the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.